benediction. All glory to God in the church. We come to Ephesians chapter 3, verses 20 through 21. And we've come to the end of a whole section of this letter. If you've had any experience with Ephesians, if you've been able to look at it and study it on your own, maybe read it in these days, hopefully you've recognized that between chapter 3 and chapter 4, there's a huge break in the subject matter really shifts from a theology to an applied theology. Paul never leaves theology in his books, in his letters. He never leaves theology. He moves from theology proper to applied theology. But he never leaves theology. See, we make that mistake, don't we? Theology is that heady stuff that academics sit around and debate and write books about and bore us to death. Preachers talk about on Sundays. But then there's real life. And, I, and, and what we hear often from people is, I, Preacher, I just need something for real life. Theology is real life. It is the most practical study you will ever do. To know God in His true character is the most practical endeavor you will ever undertake. And if you don't undertake that, your practical life will fail. I can stand here. Anyone can stand here. You can encourage one another with five steps to being a better father. Four ways to encourage your children. Three ways to be, you know, a better husband or a better wife. And you will die. The only hope you have is that I and this church teach you right theology. Right theology applies rightly into the life. And makes for strong, vibrant Christians that don't fail. So... Please, don't ever switch Paul off at the beginning of his letter. Don't ever skip 1 through 3 and go to chapter 4. Say, I just need these B's, do's. Please don't do it. You'll miss verses like this. Look at these verses, how powerful they are now to Him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us to Him, to God, be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. It's a beautiful passage. I want us to see some things here. In the Hebrew mind, there was four parts to any benediction. There were four statements made in every single blessing. The first thing we need to know is that we should give all glory to God. We have to know who it is we are praising. In our world today, we can easily become, because of the way we are programmed to think in our culture, we can easily become glory getters, glory takers, glory hogs. And we can begin to talk about our fellow men as if they are worthy of glory and honor. Now, don't misunderstand. The one who is to be honored for his work that is serving the Lord, that's not what I'm talking about, but you know what I'm talking about. These even have developed inside the church, don't they? Where personalities of certain leaders attract mobs of people. And really what the people are attracted to is not Christ. What they're attracted to is not the cross. What they're attracted to is not the gospel. But rather, it is the person and his message. And so... He then begins to swallow that hook, line, and sinker and becomes a glory seeker. His message changes. It's deceptive. 
Paul was not one of these men. Paul understood all glory and honor belonged to God and to God alone. All Christian benedictions, all Christian benediction just means blessing. All Christian blessings give all glory to God. They don't receive any glory for themselves. And it's the Hebrew pattern. It's the way they did things. God is always the object of praise in Christian benediction. There is no exception to that rule. There is nothing uh, new about what Paul is doing in our passage. God is the only one worthy of our praise. As a matter of fact, God says He will not share His glory with another. The biggest warning I would give to those who seek their own glory is that you are after what only belongs to God. You know, I fear man often. You should in some ways too. You know, like you don't give the government what's due them, you will get a knock at your door or a letter in your mailbox, and they will demand what is due to them. And they're a tough opponent, in case you didn't know. When you line up in front of a United States judge, and you're in the defense, and they're in the prosecution... You ever thought about that? That our government, if you take what's due to them and you don't give it to them and you line up to defend yourself in front of them in a court of law, the judge works for the people that are prosecuting you. This is not a good situation. You're going to have a really hard time winning. You're going to have a really hard time winning. Well, here's the case. Many of you would never think of stealing from the government what belongs to them, but you would never give a thought to stealing God's glory. Heaping to yourself reward and praise for what you do. I would rather receive a letter from the IRS demanding I meet them in court in front of one of their own judges than I had to stand in front of the judge of all men of the earth and of the heavens and him say, you robbed from me my glory. All honor and all glory belong to Christ and to God. God is the only one who is an object of praise and Christian benediction because God is the only one worthy of praise. God's all glorious, so when we ascribe glory to Him, it's simply a recognition, a recognition of His nature. Look here what it says. Now to Him who is able. If there's no question in chapter 3, verse 20, is it? It's not as if Paul's saying, boy, I hope God can do these things. Man, I hope God's up to the task. Maybe he can rise to the occasion. No. He ends his prayer with, Now to him who is able. He is able. We're going to talk about that phrase, able, in just a moment. The word there, able. But I first just want you to focus in on the fact that God is the one who is the object of praise. Not Paul. Not directly his church. But God himself is the object of praise. And this isn't uncommon in this book, is it? If you look back, this letter has been called the greatest of Paul's letters. Now, as I said some months ago now, and when we started this letter, you might want to debate about Romans and Ephesians. Maybe Romans is dear to your heart, and you think it's the greatest. That's okay. You can be wrong. Ephesians is quintessential Paul. This is it. This is the greatest letter that ever flowed from his heart, his mind, onto paper and recorded and kept for us. And the reason it's the greatest is because it is filled with benediction and prayer. The whole letter is filled with benediction and prayer. Look at chapter 1, verse 3 to see what I'm talking about. 
Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is a benediction in a sense. God is the object. Christ is God, obviously. So He is the object who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. This is a spiritual benediction. God is all glorious and He has blessed us with all that glory in Christ. This is a benediction. He starts this way. And it flows from verse 3 all the way to verse 14 in chapter 1. It's all a prayer of benediction and praise to God for who He is and what He has done. He's not finished with His prayer life. Paul returns to prayer again. He returns to prayer again in the, in the latter part of chapter 1. Look what he does. He says, For this reason, verse 15, I have heard of your faith, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, what? I don't cease to give thanks for you. He's praying again. In all of my prayers, right? I'm praying for you. That, God, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, another benediction, another blessing unto God. So he's filled this letter. He saturated it with prayer. Verse 1 of chapter 3. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. And then he picks that prayer up in verse 14, which we've been talking about here, haven't we, lately? Verse 14. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. The prayer is to and the benediction is to. The blessing is to. The ascribing of honor and glory is to God, who is the head of every Christian family, no matter their race or creed or nationality. God is the one who receives glory. And He is always acting in these prayers. He is the one who is active in these prayers. Paul's calling on Him to respond or to act according to His great wisdom and plan on behalf of the saints. This distinguishes God from the idols of the Old Testament and the idols that exist in your life. Your idols do not do anything for you. Isaiah, I challenge you to read Isaiah 41 today. Not now. When you go home. God taunts idols in Isaiah 41. He says, He says, I tell you what, Go ask your idol. Go beg and plead with him. Get him to answer you. Can he not speak? Can he not walk? Can he not act for you? I'm the God of action. That's what God's saying. Every prayer you've ever prayed, I've answered. Has an idol ever answered you when you prayed? No. God taunts idols. Why? Because he is the only one due glory and honor and praise and worship. And let me tell you something. He won't share it with anyone. So whatever you're ascribing glory and honor to in your life today outside of Christ, you need to stop, cease and desist, repent and come to Him, for He is a jealous God. We serve a jealous God. I've been teaching my children what that means. It means that He does not tolerate the worship of anything or anyone outside of Him. And if you do, His jealousy will boil over into wrath. And He will consume you because He is a consuming fire. Paul understands it, doesn't he? I mean, when he bows his knee to pray, he prays to God and God alone. When he blesses something, he blesses God and God alone. He understands God doesn't share glory with him or the church or anyone else. It's all belonging to God. 
Now to Him, now to Him, all of it is ascribed to God. So let's look at some scriptural blessings. Where would we get some scriptural benedictions? And you don't even have to turn to these passages. I'll put them on the screen for you. Look up there. First Chronicles 16, 28 through 29. In the temple worship, they ascribe the glory and honor to God. Notice they are not making God more glorious in their prayer. They are ascribing to Him. They are telling Him what He already possesses. Ascribe to the Lord, O clans of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord glory due His name. It's due to Him. Bring an offering and come before Him. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. If we look at Psalm 29, 1 through 2, we see it here, this benediction. Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. If we look at the New Testament. Galatians 1.5, Paul says, To God be the glory forever and ever. Amen. We look at Philippians 4, verse 20. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. We look at 2 Timothy 4.18. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into this heavenly kingdom. To Him be glory forever and ever. Amen. We look at 1 Timothy 6.16. God alone has immortality who dwells in unapproachable light whom no one has ever seen or can see. To Him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Romans 11.36. For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever. Amen. But of all of Paul's benedictions, of all of his statements of God due, the glory due to God... There is none like Ephesians 3, verses 20 through 21. This is the most expansive blessing in Paul's writings. Now to him who is able. Now to him who is able. What? To do what, Paul? To do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ forever, throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. So the first thing we need to know when we look at a benediction is that the benediction, the blessing, the glory is due to God and God alone. Secondly, we have the part of the blessing which is that we should praise God for His power, strength, and His graciousness. We see it in verse 20. What are we praising God for? Because of who He is. It's that simple. It's that simple and yet is that complex. You could spend the rest of your life unpacking what it means that God is. What God is. We're looking at the names of God together as a family right now. There are over 700 names given to God in the Scripture. The study starts out by saying, how many names do you have? Well, our children added them up, you know. How many names do you think God has? Well, they knew they needed to guess more than they had, you know? Because a name, we had already taught them, describes the character of the one who is named. Well, he must have more names than me, right? Ten, Daddy. No. Fifty. No. A hundred. No. They guessed and guessed. And I said, seven hundred. 
So when I tell you, you could spend the rest of your life understanding the character of the one you are blessing, I'm not exaggerating. As a matter of fact, it's my firm conviction that eternity in heaven will be consumed, no matter what else it is, it will be consumed with understanding every moment of eternity more about the character of the one who has saved us and brought us to our eternal home in the new heaven and the new earth. Every activity we do in eternity will only bring us further into the revelation of who He is. So when I say you could spend your lifetime, it's really an understatement. You will spend all of eternity gaining knowledge about who God is. Well, here Paul chooses selectively some things for us to point out or for us to see. First, he points out power. God is powerful. You see it there in your text. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think. This is a recognition of God's power. He's able to do not just what you think and not just what you pray, but He's able to do the things which you can't even imagine, which you would never dare to ask Him for. John Stott, when explaining this part of the passage, said this. He said, Do you think you've been bold before the throne of God in prayer? I dare say you've never been bold. Ask God and He will give to you. Now that's that's the way Jesus prayed, isn't it? He said, Ask, seek, knock. For those who ask will receive. Those who seek will find. Those who knock, the door will be open to them. Jesus never came saying, You know, come up with the best you can think of And ask God, and maybe if He's able to do it, He'll do it. No. Jesus prayed like one who believed His Father was able to do far more than any human could ever ask or dream up or imagine. I find myself choking back those kinds of prayers. And I think it's because I don't believe God is powerful. At the end of the day, I'm afraid God won't deliver, and He'll look bad, and I'll look bad. I can't tell you how many times, and I'm disgusted with this, I've sat in front of my children and been afraid to pray and ask God to do something practical in our family because I was afraid He wouldn't do it. That's a sin. Have you ever done that? Paul says, listen, He is able to do far more than you could ever ask or even think to ask Him for. Now, I know some of you are saying, but I've asked God for something and He didn't do it. Well, the problem with us is we don't always pray according to God's will, do we? The problem with me is I would waste what I ask for at times on myself for my own pleasure, not for God's glory. So some of the prayers that are unanswered are because they're not prayed toward God's end towards God's glory. They're prayed towards my end and my glory. So He doesn't answer them. Because to answer them would be to only encourage that kind of praying which would lead to death, not life. So God is a good God. It's not a question of His power. Listen, I have no doubts that if I asked God right now for a million dollars, it could be in the parking lot waiting on me when I leave this building. God has that kind of power. He can do anything. Okay? But He doesn't give me the million dollars. Why? Because He knows I would use the million dollars for my own good and not for Him. 
So rather than give me what I asked for and then let me die in my sin, He restrains Himself, His power, not to answer that prayer for my own good and for His glory. So it's not a question of His ability. The verse says He is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. It's not a matter of power. God is powerful. God is powerful to do beyond our ability to think or ask. If you look at verse 20 in the third part, the first part being now to Him, the second part being who is able to do, the third part being far more abundantly than all we ask or think. That word, far more abundantly, okay? Did you know here is another example of Paul making a word up? This word's never been used in the Greek language. As a matter of fact, outside of this passage, and we're going to see two other passages where Paul uses it, no one uses this word for years, hundreds of years in the Greek language. Paul made this word up. You'd say, why would you make something up? Because he's describing someone and something that is beyond description. God is beyond description. And His power is beyond description. So Paul, caught up in the Spirit, writing the inspired Word of God, says, I'm going to have to take two Greek words and put them together. Well, that's never been done before. But it's the best I can do. He just made the Word up. You know? Isn't that... That in itself is attesting to us that God is all-powerful. The fact that Paul had to create a Word to describe Him, there wasn't one in existence for Him. He had to make it up. That should point to His all-powerful nature. This word, able to do far more abundantly, it, this idea is, is new for us. He's extremely, he's able to do extremely more than I could ever ask or think of. Extremely more. The first part of the word means extreme, or it's where we get abundant. The second part of the word is able to do, he's able to do, the power part of the word is there. To do, to act. On behalf of us, His creature. And so, we see, God is able to do extremely more. Now, it's Paul's just to simply encourage you. Some of you are facing situations, whether it be grief, whether it be sickness, whether it be financial calamity, and you're entering your prayer closet timidly. Your thoughts are, I, I'm not certain God can answer. He's extremely able to do more than you could ever ask for. He is not limited in power nor in resource. He answers prayers. When you doubt His ability to answer the prayers, just pull out Isaiah and read chapters 40 through 45. And your confidence in our God will be bolstered beyond description. He is powerful. He's not only powerful, He's strong. His strength, His power, and His strength at work in us. Look at the next part here. God's power is at work within us. His strength is at work within us. Now, He's already talked about this previously in the prayer. If you look back up into verse 16, 
that according to the riches of His glory, He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being. I think in this benediction, He's bringing that out again. If you look at verse 20, according to the power at work within us. What power is at work within us? It's the strength with power from His Spirit in our inner being. That's the power at work within us. The Holy Spirit working in our inner man is strengthening strengthening us day by day. So we think we've reached the end of our limit. It's a good place to be. Bow your knee before God and ask Him to strengthen. Because He is able to do far more than you could ever hope or imagine. That's our God. This passage inspires in me two things. One, it inspires a, a mood of worship to a glorious God. And two, it inspires confidence. Listen, confidence in not just the God of heaven and earth, but a personal God. He is not only transcendent, far and away above all things which He has created, but He is imminent, able to answer everything I pray and even to give me things I could never ask for because I can't even imagine them. But listen, it's even greater than that. It's even better than that. The extent of this blessing, the reason it is extremely more than you could ever think of or imagine is because He's not talking about just physical things here, but He's talking about the eternal blessings of the new heaven and new earth, of the existence we will have with God. All of the subject from chapter 1 through chapter 3 where He has said He has blessed us with all riches from His glory... That's what's in view here. So that really brings us back to the point of when we don't get what we ask for in the moment, should we be discouraged? Paul would say, heavens no. We have all of eternity where God will pour His self out on us. Well, I didn't get the job I wanted. It's okay. You have an eternal job waiting. And He will bless you with it. I didn't get the healing I was looking for in this life. It's okay. There's a day coming when there will be no sickness. And there will be no more tears. I'm grieving beyond description. It's all right. God's going to wipe away every tear from every eye because He's able to do more than you could ever imagine. Extremely more than you could ever think of or ask for. So when we reach our utter end, physically, mentally, our capacities... To ask God, He doesn't reach His end. That's what Paul's saying. Now to Him who is able to do far more abundantly than we could ever ask or think. To Him be glory in the church and in Christ. When we look at this passage, we must recognize the extent of God's glory. He is blessing not just for the immediate but for the eternal. It comes out again in verse 21. To God be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus, what? Throughout all generations? Yes, and more. Forever? Yes, and more. And ever. That's not just repetition. That's not just Paul filling editorial space. 
you know, the editor said, when you write your letter to Ephesus, it needs to have at least 5,000 words in it. You've pulled that prank in class, haven't you? Believe me, your professor knows when you do it. Just writing sentences to meet a quota. That's not what Paul's doing here. He's trying to tell us the extent of the glory of God. It stretches through generations. That's all of this time. Every time that is to come. Forever and ever. That's the extent of the glory of God. And how is He receiving glory? He is glorious. And now how is He receiving glory to Himself? Through His church. That is a, that is a statement beyond comprehension. This all-glorious God has chosen to receive from us, the creature, the church, glory and honor. We're not adding. We are ascribing to and we are reflecting. Now this is where it becomes convicting. Hopefully you've been encouraged so far. Because at the end I find a challenge. Maybe you've already seen it. The challenge comes in the form of a question to me, to you. Are you reflecting God's glory? Paul's prayer for the church at Ephesus was that they would reflect God's glory. That they would be glorious to God. And so I have to ask, is your life now consumed with His glory in such a way that it reflects to those around you and to the ends of the earth? The church is the source of reflecting God's glory because it is in Christ Jesus. Jesus said He had one overarching goal in this life, in His life. And it was this, that He would glorify His Father in heaven. I've come to do the will of the Father that He might be glorified through me. So God, Paul says in this passage, received glory from Christ Jesus. Did He not? His whole life was a glory to His Father. And because we are in Christ, He is to receive glory from us, reflecting the picture of God to your neighbor is you. Now, the conviction sinks in. Because I have to wonder, in my day-to-day activities in life, am I ever really reflecting God's glory? Do they ever really see Him in me? Would they say, that's a Christian, that's a little Christ in our community? Or would they say, well, that's Carlton, he's a good person. Would they say, that's Carlton, he's a, he's a hard worker. That's Carlton, he's a... I can't really tell you what he is, but I'll tell you in private. But they, would they say, you're a reflection of God? Paul says that God is able to do more abundantly, extremely more than we could ever ask or think. His power is at work in us. And so therefore He should receive glory in the church and in Christ to the extent of eternity. And so we come to the last part. There were four parts. Who is to receive glory? What is He to receive glory from? Who is He to receive glory from? And the last part, one word, amen. Amen 
Yes, amen. Amen has become for us what? The closing of the prayer? But for Paul and to those in his generation and in his time, it was a statement that what has been prayed or what has been said is what? True. In the Hebrew congregation, when they did the praise and worship, the ascribing of God, His glory, do His name, when they ended those sections, if you notice in your Psalms, they always end with Amen. And those were said by the whole congregation. The leader ascribed to God this glory and honor, and then at the end, all the people said Amen. Amen. There was truth. So, Paul comes to the end, the close of this first section. And what I see here in this benediction, and really for the whole section, is Paul saying, everything I have said is truth. It is 100% accurate. It is the revelation of God. The glory is to be given to God from the church in Christ throughout every generation forever and ever. Amen. So would that statement be true it is truth but would it be true in you my my application for you today my my call to you today is in this week in preparation to transition to chapter four through six to go back through chapters one through three you heard a fabulous testimony this morning from peter of how god saved him and I hope you focused in on when he said, I believed everything I'd ever been taught about Jesus and God. But the demons even believe everything about Jesus. The difference is now I love God and I love Christ. My challenge to you is to go home this week and slowly digest again chapters 1 through 3. And don't simply say, do I believe this to be factual? But say, do I bank my life, my eternity on this? Is it really truth to me? I assure you it is truth. But it doesn't matter that it's generally the truth. What matters is, is it the truth that you're staking your life on? If not, then you need to repent and come to Christ. I don't care how long you've been in church, how many times you've been baptized, nor how many good things you've done. If you're not staking your life on God and how He reveals Himself in the first three chapters of Ephesians, if you're not staking eternity on that, you cannot say amen. You cannot repeat with Paul, this is truth. So that's the challenge. That's my call to you. We've received the benediction. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than we could ever ask or think. According to the power at work within us, that God be glory in the church and in Christ throughout all generations forever and ever. I'll leave the last word. That's between you and God. Let's pray. Father.